This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney. So welcome to another series of uh, special series of episodes that we're covering on the Ultimate Global Podcast. Um, we're coming close to the 100 episodes now. Um, and we have got a very special guest. And this is going to be the first of the series that we are doing uh, with politicians. We have done a lot of episodes with uh, CEOs, people from the industry, people from the universities in Australia. Um, I know we have covered episodes on international education, uh, me being an international student previously. So I know um, what kind of struggle international students go through. So we have covered uh, episodes there. And now we are also touching on important stakeholders in Australia. That's Australian government, uh, the New South Wales government. So we've got the Honourable uh, Victor Dominillo, um, the MP and the member for right. Uh, he's currently the New South Wales Minister for Customer Service and Minister for Digital Government. And I don't think there can be a better time to invite him because he's just going to retire in a month's time. Um, I'm sure he's going to share a lot of key learnings from his political career because he's had a long career of political career of 14 years, and uh, he's been a minister for the last 11 years. Gosh, that's a lot. Um, and while I was going through your profile, I found out that you have held uh, ministerial posts not only in customer service and digital government, which you have been holding for four years, but you've also been the minister for uh, multiculturalism. So maybe, minister, I might start off with you um, and uh, ask you what has been your toughest role till now as a minister and what have been your biggest achievements till there and why do you think so? Uh, well, thanks, Jovan George. Um, it's a really good question. What's my toughest role? Uh, look, I, I think the toughest role I've had was would have been uh, my first role because not only did I have to get across uh, the brief, and that happens with every ministry, you've got to get across the brief, but because when you're uh, a baby minister, a junior minister, uh, being thrown into a bubble, and that's what being a minister is like, you live in this bubble, um, that was very uh, confronting because I wasn't used to that. So I had to learn the brief, but also learn what it was like to uh, to perform as a minister and to behave as a minister and to, to have the, um, you know, the expectations and the demands uh, placed on you. So... I think that was the toughest role, uh, and particularly in a time perspective. Like, uh, I was the initially the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and Multiculturalism and Veterans Affairs and uh, Youth and uh, and Volunteering and Community. So it was very outward facing. So during that four year period, uh, I was out honestly about five or six nights a week and early start. So that, they were long, long days. But, you know, when you get into a rhythm, particularly after about five, six, seven, eight years as a minister, you really understand the rhythm and the cadence. Uh, then you can really start focusing more on the deeper policy uh, levers that you can drive inside a government to have greater impact. So, yeah, a great question. Definitely the first um, tenure. Thank you so much for that. Um, 
I think for your specific ministry now, uh, data privacy, I see it's a very major concern. Uh, so you're handling the digital side of it and data privacy is a major concern with issues like what we have seen recently with Optus and other companies when the data was leaked. With regards to data privacy in your sector, what do you think is the biggest challenge that this particular industry in uh, specifically faces in the government domain and industries as well? Oh, I think the biggest challenge is cultural. Yeah, I've maintained that, that we technology is not the problem, it's not the challenge. We, we put people on the moon 50 years ago. Technology is not the challenge. The challenge is essentially refitting society into a data slash digital centric world. Most of our uh, cultural landscape and political uh, and societal structures is built in an analog world, uh, such as even our concepts of privacy. You know, that doesn't really translate well to a world that is uh, in real time. Uh, that is internet, that is global, that is almost seamless. So culturally, we need to start rethinking uh, what individual privacy means in a in a, a world where the internet is uh, ubiquitous in our lives, and data sharing is is also ubiquitous. What the recent data breaches have demonstrated is that we really need to reset. Uh, our privacy and security settings, particularly around the individual. Uh, you know, and culturally, for example, we are so used to providing people with a copy of our driver's license. We're so used to providing people with a copy of our birth certificate and not thinking about where that goes. Because 20 years ago, that would end up in a, a, a you know, tin filing cabinet and probably stay there for 20 or 30 now it doesn't. It goes into a filing cabinet, then into the cloud, and then who knows? So I think they are the biggest challenges, uh, particularly for government and industry alike. And by the way, this question just came to me because I posted on, I saw your post on LinkedIn two days ago, which said that around $8.895 were debited from your account randomly last month. Uh, it was a small amount. That's why you didn't challenge for it. And I'm sure that, you know, for some of the people who live on uh, minimum wages, for them, it can be a big amount if it gets on, it keeps on getting debited from their bank accounts, isn't it? Oh, spot on. And it may not even be $8.95. There could be, you know, 50 cents. And uh, people would think, look, it's not worth me the effort of challenging it. But if it's 50 cents, you know, once a week, uh, then that all adds up. And if you can't afford it, uh, that's how some of these scammers operate. They just take out little amounts. They'll, they'll describe it uh, you know, in a very fraudulent way, in a misleading way. So you think, oh, yeah, it's just a normal Amazon charge or whatever it is. Oh, it must be part of Apple or whatever it is. And you just accept it where you shouldn't. Uh, if you've got any questions in relation to um, money taken out of your account, you should definitely raise questions about it because not only are you looking after yourself, if it is a fraud, um, you're tipping off the bank who can then help other people you know, associated with a, that scam. 
absolutely. Before I pass it on to George, I'm sure who is uh, rubbing his hands to ask uh, you a few questions. Um, I also want to, you know, understand from you. So if we see in the last three or four years since the time you have taken charge of your ministry, I think New South Wales has seen some really serious digital transformation. And that, I think, includes a lot of things, starting from service New South Wales app, be it the QR code check-ins that we have had, be it the Dine and Discover vouchers that you launched in 2020, 2021 for people to uh, come out and boost that tourism and even sector which was going down at a bad time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's been an incredible era uh, which we can see of digital transformation that NSW has witnessed under your uh, ministry. Uh, so what role do you think COVID-19 has played to kind of uplift that? Um, and what kind of efforts do you think went on to the development of these uh, initiatives? I think uh, COVID has had a profound impact. Uh, it was that moment where you know, digital wasn't a nice to have, it was a must have. And you know, we did pivot uh, with COVID to uplift a lot of capacity across the people of New South Wales. The, the example that is very illustrative was the digital driver's licence. So we launched that uh, in 2019 uh, and you, you, know, you get your innovators, you get your early adopters, they, they pick up the first 15, 20% and then it starts slowing down. Uh, and, and that's the typical curve. We, we got to that 20% in terms of adoption reasonably quickly, but then it was just slowly incrementally in terms of uh, how many people adopted the digital driver's licence. COVID came in and we needed a response and the response couldn't just be pen and paper anymore because we realised that when people were checking in, they were writing down uh, Mickey Mouse. Now, that wasn't good for public safety. And furthermore... And when they were, if you, they were being legitimate, they were writing down Victor Dominello, they'd have to write down their contact details. And that wasn't good for privacy. So we then used that opportunity to pivot to digital through the service app. And we pivoted off the data and digital architecture we laid down with the driver's license. So that then saw a massive uplift right across the ages, right across the demographics uh, in relation to the use of the service app. Uh, and then we piggybacked off that, uh, the QR codes, into the Dine Discover voucher. So we got to a point now where before the pandemic, we were sitting at around 22 23% of digital adoption of the driver's licence. Uh, we're now at 78%. Now, consider that that is not mandatory. That is all locked in. 78%, call it 80%. It's just extraordinary adoption. So COVID had a big role to play. Having said that, we had the architecture in place beforehand uh, so we could quickly utilise it to, for the good of the people of New South Wales. Before I pass, uh, before I ask you more questions, I might just pass it on to my co-host. Uh, George, do you have any questions for Victor? I do indeed. Um, and firstly, I have to say to you, I am delighted to have you on. Uh, I made the suggestion to Sarab a while back and um, uh, it's probably going to take me about four or five years to forgive you for retiring because at a time when this state needs top politicians, I believe we're losing one of the best. Oh, so, um, and I'm, 
I'm well known within my group of not being afraid to call out politicians when they've been in the wrong. Uh, and I am a, a liberal voter, but I've been quite happy to attack when they make a mistake. But you, sir, are one of the best we've had. And I, I do not believe that I will forgive you in five years. But <laughs> I will try. But thanks, George. But I'm, I'm, I'm part of a big team, a great collective. Like, I'm part of the same mission that you're on. And Strav's yes. on it. You know, we're using, because we understand that if we use data, digital tech, uh, you know, with respect, we actually improve profoundly people's lives. Uh, so I'm just part of a bigger mission. Uh, so so my question to you is this, Victor. Um, you've had an a, a incredible career. It's been a long career. You've been into more than your fair share of ministries. Most ministers will end up, they go along and they, oh, they stumbled in that one. We move them over here. They... They did okay here, but they really excelled there. You've, you've, um, in my studying of the Victoria of the um, New South Wales politics, I can't, I can't recall a time when Victor ever got into trouble for being making a mess of things. So, what is it do you think that you've taken from each ministry that's been that transferable skill that there are so many of us that think, oh, Victor Dominello, he's one of the good ones. What, what what do you think's allowed you to get... Because they've been very varied ministries too. Yeah, I think, well, well thank you for that assessment. I'll, I'll let others judge on that. Um, there's probably two things I've tried to focus on in, in the last 12 years as being a minister is, uh, one, I know I'm not an expert. I listen to far smarter people than me. So whenever I go into a ministry... I, I try to listen more than I speak and, and by a quantum amount, particularly in the early years when I'm trying to get uh, an understanding of the landscape. I will never be a deep dive expert. That's, that's not my job. My job is to listen to smart people, um, you know, industry experts, then bring all of that together uh, and then get a coalition of the willing around reform. Uh, don't be pig-headed about things. So I create that coalition of willing across the political aisle as well. I think that's when you get the really good reform, when you can, you know, say that my Labor, Greens, independent colleagues agree with it. So I think that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is I try my very, very best uh, to be policy-focused, not politically driven. I, to be honest, I, I'm not really attracted to politics, so, you know, Playing politics, playing the individual is just very, very, very boring, very low rent. Um, I like discussing ideas and, uh, you know, moving uh, the, the dial forward. So they might sort of, my gauges uh, in my political career, collaboration across the aisle with industry experts, you know, having great input and uh, focusing on policy rather than politics. Thank you very much. I, what, just one follow-up on that. What was it that caused Victor Dominello to suddenly go, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go and have a crack at politics? What what drove you to that choice? Gladys uh, Berejiklian. So I didn't want to be, I didn't want to go into politics. I was a, I was a lawyer uh, and I was a partner in a litigation uh, practice, a small firm, had about 20 of us. And uh, I remember it was the 15th of August, 
2008, because that was the 10th anniversary of my dad passing. And I was in Mexico, Playa del Carmen. And uh, I remember uh, looking into the stars that night, full moon, and long story short, I said, look, if, uh, I'm really happy in my life course. I'm a lawyer, I'm a partner, I'm doing things I love. Um, uh, yeah, I've got my health, I've got my family, I've got a great uh, you know, practice. If you want me to keep going on this path, so be it. I'll just do more pro bono work uh, in this space and, and be happy. Uh, if you don't, if the universe wants me to do something different, let me know, but make, make sure it's pretty obvious because I'm pretty stubborn. Uh, so uh, two weeks after that, that fateful dialogue with the universe, I come back into Sydney and I got this random call out of the blue from Gladys saying that uh, uh, John Watkins has resigned as the member for Ride. We want you to run as an MP. And I said, forget it. I am not <laughs> interested. Who wants to be a politician? They're all idiots. They, you know, they, just, they just focus on themselves. I've got this great career path. I'm 14 years into it and starting to get, not easy, but I know it inside out now. Why would I want to start from scratch? I said to Glad, look, because she's pretty persistent. I said, look, if you convince my mum and my two sisters, I'll do it. One sister said, don't do it. We'll never see you again. The other sister said, do it. My mum said, do it because your dad would be proud. Here I am. And if one of those three voted the other way, I would still be a lawyer today. Well, there's a lot of us that are glad you made that choice. Well, my family made that choice for me. I'll, I'll hand back to you, sir. Yeah, I think that's a that's an you know remarkable story of you going back to that time. Um, and possibly I might have a follow up question with that. Only um, I'm in my mid twenties. Um, you know, you both are already cross fifty. Not telling you about your ages. But what is something which you would love to share with your younger self? Uh, so George, by the way, George is my personal and professional life mentor. I found him in Australia. When I came here in Australia as an international student, um, I found that there's a guy who is 40 years older than me. So I don't have experience. I don't have wisdom. Maybe I can learn that from a much older guy than me. What is that something that you would like to tell to your younger self? Oh, well, I, I think that's a great lesson to your younger self, to my younger self. I, um, I had a few mentors, but I wasn't strong on uh, having, uh, you know, great mentors like George. I, you know, somebody with George's experiences is just a brilliant mentor, uh, privileged to have him. So you, you, I would definitely say to my younger self, you know, surround yourself with, you know, great mentors because, you know, I had my dad, but my dad passed away. He was, you know, he was my hero. So, but my dad passed away when I was 30. Uh, and then I sort of went into a, my own shell for 10 years and just did my own thing and just went into a, a bit of a cave. So definitely have great mentors around you because they are, you know, they are, they've got the scar tissue. They've fallen over more times than you, you have in your young self. So I reckon that's number one. And number two is... When you got mentors, they encourage you. Uh, so when you're on your own, like I was on my own a lot when I was, you know, when my dad passed away, uh, you know, when I made mistakes, when I fell down, fell fell down as you do, it's it's harder to get back up. But if you got great mentors, they they lift, help lift you up. So I, I think that's a great life lesson. 
Don't do it. You don't need to do it alone. Um, one of the things that I really want to touch with you, which is particularly regarding uh, government sector, Victor, is that uh, government departments are notoriously slow in affecting <laughs> the change um, or making decisions quickly. You know, if you're coming from a country like mine, um, India, we are known as one of the slowest governments, you know, still we are trying to make things digital. We are talking about digital India. Uh, we are talking about making stuff digital, but still there are a lot of things, a lot of hustle which you have to go through. And I'm sure government departments are no different anywhere else. Uh, I'm sure your role is primarily towards driving that innovation. Um, it can be frustrating at times with a person like you who doesn't have a political background, who's coming from industry and put into politics. What kind of techniques, approaches or strategies did you use to speed up that decision-making process? Uh, yeah, a few techniques, but can I, can I just quickly add as uh, an adjunct to what you were saying? Like, India is doing amazing things. Like, I, I've been following India afar in relation to the India stack, for example. Like, you know, some real exciting things in the digital space happening from uh, Mother India. So, uh, you know, I, I look uh, to India for a lot of learnings as well. Uh, but in terms of uh, New South Wales, the, the biggest thing uh, that I can do to promote uh, how shall I say, informed and faster decision-making is to frame up that, that decision-making process around pilots and trials. So you de-risk a lot of it. Uh, I think typically politicians go out there, uh, you know, beat their chest and say, look what we have done or look what we are announced this big thing and say to the world, this is going to be perfect and we're going to be great and you can build a, a monument in my name because we've done something so great for you. I think you don't need to be, uh, you know, that grandeur in your, your statement. You, you can say, look, we need to get this. This is gonna be part of the journey. And, and what we're gonna do is work with the community. We'll pilot something up. It's not gonna be perfect, but let's be honest, it, that's what pilots are about. Let's get, find out where the wrinkles are. Let's accept there'll be problems. Let's identify the problems, let's share the problems, let's work the problems so that we can get a solution together and then pilot out, pilot out, pilot. You know, in the startup community, there's that great saying, you design big, you build small. And, and we, we've done that time and time again. And, and when you do that, you get that license from community to have a go because you're not saying to the community, you know, these outlandish promises, this will happen and it will be 100% perfect. As soon as you say that, you lose credibility. But if you say and you're open to the community, look, there might be areas that there will be areas that we have to fix, but let's have an open discussion about it and get you part of the design and the feedback. You, it's amazing how much license the community will give you to innovate and to reform with significant agility and pace. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the lessons, uh, you know, that we can keep on learning from each other um, in terms of learning from other states within Australia and also yeah. learning from other countries. If they're doing something good, we can always share those learning because it's all about learning something from others, which we can kind of incorporate in our life um, as well. Uh, George, do you have any questions? Yes. Um, Sticking on the theme of you being very successful in a multitude of ministries, 
and those being very varied ministries. Yeah. Which one do you think has given you the most satisfaction? Um, because you've had achievements in, in anything that you've done. Um, looking back over the different things that you've done, um, which one do you, do you do you have one that you sort of go, you know what, I don't, I'm, I'm glad all the others work, but I'm I'm particularly proud of that, or or get satisfaction out of that, or do they all have a? a oh, they a all have, right? They all have um, particular uh, connections. Like they, I've just been so blessed um, for talking. So, for example, in relation to Aboriginal affairs, my first one, like. The, the learnings, the um, the camaraderie, the support that the uh, Aboriginal community provided to me when I was a beginner, and 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 the patience that they had with me, it's just extraordinary. I just never, you know, I, I'll always hold that community uh, close to my heart and and be forever grateful for their patience, particularly for a young junior green minister. Um, uh, I wish I knew what I now know now back then. Um, so, but same with the multicultural portfolio, like just, uh, you know, it's just like to this day, it feels like a, a family when I go to some of these community events. It's just like we've just stayed together on the journey. But in terms of impact, it's really the one in the last, say, five or six years when we started that data digital tech journey together. Um, you know, that, that has had deep impact across the state. But more importantly, uh, we've created a momentum now where it will continue way beyond my lifetime and even far better than I will ever achieve um, because the that momentum is there. So I, I think the last seven years have been very, very fulfilling. And just on that, um, the great debate about um, AI and that. Um, I wrote an article about, or I wrote, put a post up the other day where I said it's fantastic, it's done lots of good things for us. But one of my concerns is the application of it to me over the last two decades. Um, it seems to me like we're almost getting kids to a stage where we're not teaching them to think because we don't have to. Uh, and I used the example uh, in, in mental arithmetic. I, I can leave any of my children for dead in doing mental arithmetic because when they grew up, they had a calculator. Now, yeah. you're not quite as old as me, but... but I'm, you would well, I'm about your age, I think, yeah. But you would well remember, like, you know, we had the cos and the sign charts and we yeah, had to I sit down and work things out. So, so I, where do you... I, I, where I, do I you have a protractor, George. George, I had a protractor <laughs> when I was in Sydney. And a slide rule. <laughs> So where do you sit on that? Where yes, it's good, but uh, where, where's the happy medium that we make sure yeah. our young people are still taught to actually bloody think? Yeah, it's, it's geez, you, you pose a really uh, deep question. I, I remember when I was Minister for Aboriginal Affairs and uh, Noel Pearson. I went up to Cape York, and Noel Pearson uh, was uh, of the school of thought that. Uh, he wanted to make sure that his community learnt the basics, you know, the traditional rote learning uh, and the yep. like. And, and the education system was saying, no, 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 no. We need creative. We need creative. Uh, and Noel Pearson said, look, you know, 
if you get a kid that's got so many challenges in their world because they've got challenges back home, et cetera, et cetera, ch you know, challenges in community, but they will learn more if you teach them two plus two equals four, two plus blah, 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 you know, the mass timetables. And, and I actually went there and saw firsthand how the kids were absolutely like attracted being engaged with the teacher uh, because they love that discipline uh, of learning those timetables. They love the discipline of, of um, you know, learning the literature, et cetera, et cetera. But then on the other side of the equation, as you pointed out, you need to have creativity as well. So I think it's, um, you need the balance. And I, I don't, I'm not a, a you know, a, a pedagogy uh, uh, expert, but you need the balance. I, and I think if we don't get that balance in, in terms of structure, like that core, I'll call it rote thinking, uh, where I can now say seven sevens are 49 without thinking about it, uh, as well as the creative part of your brain, which is super important, you need both. So you need the foundation, but equally, I think you need to build on that foundation with critical thinking. I think that's where the balance is somewhere. So if I had it my way, I would lay down the, the, the foundation um, that you know, we were taught, George, all those years ago, but then add on critical thinking from that right yep and i think one of the episodes that we did recently was on curiosity and creativity driving innovation uh, we had a podcaster who joined us a few months ago we when we talked about this thing but i want to you know continue to that discussion itself and kind of bring this discussion to the current scenario uh, when where we are seeing the largest tech layoffs happening in the us at the moment we have had yeah. Google removing 12,000 people. We have had Microsoft removing 10,000 people. We have had Amazon removing 18,000 people. Um, and amidst that, the question that might come to the minds of many people who might want to work in technology is, what's the role of technology across several industries with these recent trends like chat GPT coming into place? Um, and do you feel there is a trend where you need to upskill and reskill yourself from time to time in this ever-evolving world. Oh, absolutely. That that trend of uh, upskilling, reskilling is just going to be a function of of um, of the journey for all of us, including myself. Like, you know, the, the moment I stop learning is 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 the moment I've become stale and not really able to contribute. I think we all need to learn, including myself. Me more than anybody else, I need to continue to learn. Um, so that has to happen. Uh, and in terms of the tech, I'm right, sure, there's some layoffs happening now, but these are just adjustments. But in, in the scheme of things, I can't think of any other industry uh, that is so ubiquitous in our future. Because, sure, uh, there's uh, health, but where's the growth going to be in health tech? and its application, ed tech, red tech, ag tech. You know, tech as a suffix is pretty much the way our world's going to be defined. Uh, there's always and must always be that that humanity, that human component. We see that particularly in the nursing and aged care and the like. But increasingly, when you're nursing or aged care, they will use tech as, uh, you know, as a guidance assistance to provide greater care. So, you know, I just think 
there's only upside for the tech industry. Sure, Google may lay off and Amazon may lay off, but it means there's just going to be more uh, for other sectors in the, in the tech area to absorb. It's just going to continue to grow. That's, that's just the plain reality. And in an aging demographic, uh, again, you know, the tech sector that is so vital and dynamic, yeah, I just see upside for us. And, and uh, a number a number of years ago, I was involved with um, Parramatta. I, I was one of the founders of the ParaConnect movement, oh, yeah. um, and I was I had the pleasure of having a bit of a chat with Bernard Salt, and then he presented um, a great paper. Now, I'm guessing that's probably about ten years ago, thereabouts. Um, and I remember Bernard saying that for every job we've lost in Australia over the years. Yeah. We create ten. My my question on this, though, Victor, is that it seems to me that technology is moving so fast. Mm-hmm. And yes, we will add those jobs in eventually, maybe. But what happens to Farmer Brown and 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 Billy Bob the labourer and all those all those people that are in their late fifties, maybe even early sixties that. They're not going to suddenly be jumping on the computer. They're not going to be, you know, to say to, to the guy, well, look, now you're going to drive a, a geo-controlled tractor. Not going to happen. He doesn't even understand how to use his damn phone. Yeah, so where do you see that? Because the tech's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. Yeah. The advancement's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. Now, in Europe, I think there's a couple of countries, I don't know whether anybody's introduced it yet, but there was a couple of countries even talking about having like a minimum wage for people not to work. Yeah. Um, where do you see all that, or, or is that something that doesn't really float into your thinking? It, it, it does absolutely floats into my thinking, um, but in, in the in the Australian context, uh, at least, we've got the lowest unemployment rates in recent memory. So our challenge is, uh, you know, we're, we're in a position now where. Um, the federal government rightly is thinking about how we actually get the seniors back in to the workforce because we're short. You know, so sure, they may not be driving a tractor, but, you know, if they go down the road to the local restaurant, they could be, you know, pulling beers or whatever. Like, there, there will be a constant need, whether it's uh, or, or in personalised care, whether it's helping out in the nursing home, whatever the case may be. I guess what I'm trying to say is... Um, if you look at the demographic movement of the planet, they, the UN has brought forward, uh, I think, to 2080, the point where we start as a globe declining in population. So they had it at 2100. They were going to get to a globe at about, you know, I hope my, sets are, uh, my facts are about right, at about, um, I think we're going to peak at about 13, Bill, or something mm-hmm. like that, and around 2100. They've now brought that forward to mem- from memory to about 2080. I, the biggest challenge for our world uh, as a species is that we're going to be in decline. Uh, and if there is a shortage of human capital, then, uh, then that means there's going to be a huge demand or a huge competition for that human capital. Hmm. So I, I accept that there may be lags right now but in the next 20 30 40 years uh, 
the human capital will be at an absolute premium. So, yeah, I accept that there could be challenges in the short to medium term, but in this country, at least, we're at very low rates um, and we've got the opposite problem at the moment. I'll try and let you back in, Sarah. Yep. Um, as we are heading, you know, to the end of this uh, podcast episode, uh, one or two questions, you know, which are left from my side is one of them is with regards to the Sydney Startup Hub. Um, I heard your interview two or three months ago where you said that uh, there has been a lot of investment from the New South Wales government in the last 10 years or so when they invested for the first time in Sydney Startup Hub to raise money for the startups to help them find a space. And we have seen an increase in other shared uh, workspaces as well. I'm working in Work Club Global at the moment, which is in Barangaroo. Mm -hmm. But we have had spaces like WeWork, Fish Burners, um, Stone and Chalks, Tanker Labs. Um, how do you see them growing in the coming years with the popularity of hybrid work now getting even more popular every single day, uh, along with technologies uh, getting evolved every day? Oh, I, again, I just see uh, the growth on a north uh, trajectory. And to, to, to that point, we're building out Tech Central. And in Tech Central, uh, we're now building out a scale-up hub. Now, uh, you know, I imagine, you know, I don't know if this is public yet, but I'll, I'll raise it. You know, there, there's a real opportunity for the startup hub in uh, Wynyard to move across into Tech Central to then, uh, you know, piggyback seamlessly with the scale-up hub because that's where, that's where we need to be. We need to show people uh, the aspiration. And, and those great startup communities uh, and courageous ones in many ways because they're putting a lot online. Uh, to, to show them what, you know, what success could look like with scale-up opportunities. So, uh, look, I, again, I think about the mobility of the market force, of the workforce. Uh, to your previous point, we're gonna, all of us are going to have to continue to learn, which is a great thing. We're students at school, we're, pupils at school, we're students for life. Continue to learn, evolve, uh, and that means moving from skill to skill, the industry, 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 etc. So I, I just see uh, that startup scale up community becoming more and more prevalent as part of our matrix. I, I just can't see it going backwards. Is there anything additional do you think, Victor, can be done to even um, invite new startups? Um, I know there have been a couple of initiatives which you have, you know, which the government has been driving, but do you think there is a need to do something additional to attract people from um, outside as well uh, or, or entrepreneurs from outside who can kind of add to the uh, energy that the Sydney Startup Hub is already having if we are kind of imagining it to take it to the Silicon Valley kind of thing that is in the U.S.? I think well, there's two main things that governments do. Um, firstly, we're the griller in the market. We, you know, we employ so many people uh, in the public sector, whether it's uh, nurses, uh, teachers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, fireys, ambulance officers. Uh, we employ so many people and we have a huge budget, uh, you know, not, not just on wages, but in infrastructure and the like, service delivery. So we're the griller in the market. And generally where governments go, the market tends to follow because they can see um, they, they're cutting that, that line through the water. Um, so we can use our budget in terms of expenditure uh, to provide startups with feed funding, grants, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and procurement opportunities. 
But increasingly in our world, uh, it's opening up data uh, because it's one thing providing money, but you know the real gold is uh, you know the the data. And I'm not talking about individual data. That's sacrosanct. That's as an individual. But the uh, the anonymized data, the the metadata that can be used for public good, and public good being to drive better health outcomes, education outcomes, but opening up that data for the private sector to come and say, wow, now that we've got that, we can understand the problem uh, and therefore craft a solution, either for the private sector or to sell back to government. So I think they're the two big things. Sure, we can create places and spaces uh, in collaboration with the community, but it's really the data thing that we're just, in many ways, just starting that journey. But as we mature as a, a state and a jurisdiction, this is going to be far, far more powerful in, in the years to come. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. One last question from my side before I pass on to George for his one last question is uh, regarding the digital birth certificate. I, I assume this is something new which you are introducing this year. So um, what I read about it was parents will not be requiring to carry around a piece of paper so that they can sign up for their kids for sports, for childcare, for different <laughs> things. Instead of that, they'll be able to just show this digital birth certificate on their smartphone as and how they need it. So what is the what is the ultimate benefit uh, that you are trying to bring on? I've already already listed down two of them. But, you know, from a government point of view, is that something which you found as a problem over the years uh, because of which you came out with this idea? Well, the the backstory to the digital birth certificate is um, when we created the agency department customer service, um, the birth certificate, the birth deaths and marriages traditionally sits with uh, the attorney general, with justice. Uh, but when we created the department of uh, community service, I actually, as a department of customer service, I said uh, to Gladys, the premier at the time, can I please, please have birth deaths and marriages in my cluster, we can you know we can share it with justice, but I need that in my cluster operationally, because the, I need that because their foundation piece is the first series. It's a, it's a primary identity document, and the very first thing I said to the team at First Series Marriages is, thank you for the great work you're doing. I don't know what your priority is now, but digitising the birth certificate has to be your priority. Uh, and it's taken uh, about four years, but we're now at the stage where we're about to pile it out in, in, you know, on mass this year. And, and the reason for that is um, once you've got your digital birth certificate, in many ways, that's a foundation certificate, like a, a passport or a driver's licence. Again, all of these issued by government, because only government can issue those um, certifications true to source. There, there can be other vendors that then... Uh, you know, re, redistribute it, but to source only government can really be the issue to source. And therefore, uh, when we're now moving into a digital identity space, when I need to show my birth certificate to enrol a kid in school, sure, at the moment I show them a bit of paper that contains my details, my mum, my dad and everything else. Too much information. Once it's in a digital form, we can say, no, we're not going to show you all that information. We're just going to show you the stuff you need to know. But that's really just a stepping stone to a digital ID where you don't even need to share your primary credential in the first place. 
in a digital ID world, I want to enroll my kid in school. Here's my digital ID. All you need to know is I'm real uh, and that you know, I'm, I'm above the age of four. Therefore, I can be enrolled. You don't need to have all the details in my primary credential. So that's the world we're moving to. I need to digitize diversity to get us there. But yeah, the big vision moving forward is to protect people's privacy around uh, their personal information and their primary credentials. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing that uh, because, you know, for the audience, it's always good to know what's the context behind any initiative that the government has taken. What was the problem? Uh, it's kind of a startup as well. You know, you think of a problem, you work on the idea and then you implement it for the for your customers, in this case, for the people. But George, do you have any final question before we end today's episode? Yes, I do. Victor, I would assume that we are probably one of your last few podcasts during your time as a politician. So what I'd like to do is ask you to help me forgive you. <laughs> and we have a commitment from you that we're allowed to invite you back as one of your first podcasts as a private person. I, 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 uh, uh, I seek your absolution. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll see you in the confessional. And, uh, yeah, I, I'd be... I'd be honoured. I'd be privileged to come back as a as right. a private person. I just I just want to finish before Sarab takes over. There are very very few people in this world that I have admired but not met, and then when I meet them, I admire them more. You yeah. are one of them. Oh, you thanks, are one of them. Very kind of you. Thanks, George. Um, on how do you Sarab? Uh, so on behalf of George and myself, uh, Victor, I want to thank you uh, for taking your time today. I know your time is precious um, and uh, you have taken 50 minutes of your time today to kind of spend with us. Um, and I'm sure that this podcast is going to uh, add a lot of value to the listeners, uh, to our existing audience and to new new people as well who will be listening to us on uh, LinkedIn. And if you can reshare that on your LinkedIn, that will be even better uh, because... Mm -hmm. uh, reach out to more people in New South Wales uh, with our message. So our message is pretty simple on this podcast. Uh, we want to learn from different people uh, and yeah. we want to share the stories of different people because no matter if you are the member of parliament, no matter if you are the premier or even if you're a normal person, there's always something new which you can learn uh, wow. from every individual. And that's the whole wow. concept of this podcast. Um, and that's why we have, we have done special series of, of, of episodes with not only the CEOs, but, you know, people down under the organization as well, who might not be uh, the CEOs, because, you know, there is something new that we can learn from their story as well. Thank you so much. Do you have any final message before we oh, leave? No, thank, thank you for your uh, collective leadership as well. Like I'll, um, as George said, this is probably going to be one of my last, if not last, podcasts. So uh, thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed the discussion. This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney.